Hello, and welcome to Old Spiral Podcast. This week, Drew and I are going to do something a little bit different. Uh, With everything that's been going on, we've been spending more time at home, and we've had this episode saved up. We were going to give it to our Patreon supporters, but we're just going to go ahead and make this one at live for everybody. Now, I do have remote conferencing figured out, so if anyone wants to stay in quarantine and still be on the show... Uh, We have that out. We'll hopefully be getting guests in again soon. But until then, uh, this is kind of a fun one. Here's Drew and I's take on some of the cool and strange things that you can find uh, around this area. This should be fun. Enjoy the episode and stay healthy out there so you can all tune in next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. This week, we venture into the realm of the fantastic, the bizarre, and the truth that's stranger than fiction. We take a look at the longer-than-life creatures that traverse the Cascades and crawl into the farm fields of the Palouse, peer into the realm of the ancient occupants of the Camas Prairie, and marvel at a space that stands in defiance of Newton's law of gravity. Stick around for the weirdness that's in our backyards. Picture this. I can grow up to a meter in length, with a viscous coating, translucent skin revealing internal organs. My spit reeks of lilies, and I have dwellings that stretch out up to 15 feet below the Earth's surface. I am one of the most unique and curious life forms living in the Palouse. Can you guess my name? Well, my spit, it may not really stink of lilies. That's a myth. But then again, there are many myths about me. In fact, until recently, some didn't even believe in my existence. I am, of course, the giant Palouse earthworm. Okay, let's talk about the giant Palouse earthworm. Uh, I, I didn't know a heck of a lot about the about this giant Palouse earthworm uh, before we did the episode. I guess I knew that it existed. But we learned about, you know, some of the myths behind it when it was first discovered, who discovered it, and it was just a lot of fun. What do you think? Yeah, I had a lot of fun. It was neat. I remember my grandma telling me about it, you know, the kind of the myths behind it being three feet long and smelling like a lily and spitting when it was angry. Right. (laughs) Um, So I kind of had a vague idea of what it was, and it was really neat looking into it because... I learned a lot about the Palouse, you know, which is super important to where we live. I mean, we might have that seaport, inland seaport, but we were shipping grain. Right. Yeah. You know, so that was kind of cool as we learned a a little bit about the the terrain of the Palouse before agriculture and how much agriculture's kind of wiped it out and how there's some contention between the worm and the farmers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the worm dates back. It's actually pretty rare. How many times was it found over the years? So it it was first discovered in 1897 uh, by a guy called R.W. Doan of Washington State University. And then he passed it off to Frank Smith, who was an American naturalist. Um, who wrote some papers about it. Yeah, the worm expert. The worm expert. And it wasn't seen again for 
a decades. And in, in the last 40 years, it's only been seen three times. Something like that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we're not talking about people just seeing it. I'm sure there's people that live in the Palouse that say, you know, I saw an earthworm. Right. And that's cool. You probably did. You might have. And that's that was one of the things we learned was like kind of how to how do you know if it's a giant Palouse earthworm or just a really big different type of earthworm? Right. Yeah, because we were discussing like you see a an earthworm every now and again that's really long. And how, what's the difference between that and a giant Palouse earthworm? Yeah. And, and we're talking about three feet long. It doesn't actually get well, it, that's not true. It we theoretically could get three feet long, but re- generally they're found like up to a foot and a half. Right. Which doesn't seem that far out of the realm of possible for like a regular earthworm. But in any case, um, it, it came out, it came up again in recent years because in 2008 it was discovered again um, by some researchers from the University of Idaho. And actually, one of those researchers is named Carl Umaker. He owns Clearwater Canyon Winery with his wife, Coco, right? Yeah, Coco and Carl run Clearwater Canyon Winery. It's great wine. I play there every now and again. But they're both scientists, and I guess Carl was up. It'd be fun to actually get him in here. Oh, that'd be uh, great. Not only to talk about wine, but someone who actually knows about the Palouse earthworm would be fun to get in here, too. Yeah, we can say that we'd had a worm specialist on the show. Yeah, I love a good worm specialist. (laughs) Well, Carl was working up at the U of I, and him and another graduate student found the earthworm in like 2008-ish. There's been articles, a few articles came out around 2010, um, but very rare sightings. And actually, they developed kind of a sweet method that Drew was telling me he's got some experience with for getting the earthworms out. Because, of course, if you're digging and you get an earthworm with your shovel and cut it in half, that's not very good for it. Right. Yeah, so they were they were using this electric probe essentially, which rednecky people I'm sure are familiar with uh, for probing into the ground to to uh, summon gotta get up. my fishing worms right. You gotta summon up <clears throat> those those uh, night crawlers to use as bait. Nothing better than catching your own worms and then going out and catching a fish, though. That is a very Hank Hill statement, and I like it. Good. Uh, but yeah, so they, they were using this method to shock the ground to entice these worms to come out. And apparently it was successful. Um, and in addition to finding these worms again in 2008, they also found earthworm cocoons. And What the heck is an earthworm cocoon is yeah. what I asked myself. <laughs> so I looked it up and apparently that's how earthworms are uh, born. Yeah. Uh, again, it'd be nice to have a worm specialist give us more information <laughs> on it. But the, you can pack, like, they're real small. They kind of look like seeds. It's like a little grape yeah. structure. Exactly. It's it's gross. And then the worms, like, I guess. <laughs> YouTube I, it. Yeah, YouTube it. The videos are great. I guess a bunch of worms can crawl out, and there's there can be up to 20 of them, some species. Right. But that's, that's where, the, and they found a bunch of these cocoons. They took them back to the lab, and apparently they hatched them and studied them. But I couldn't find anything about that, so it would be cool to learn Yeah, more. and I'm assuming that there is still ongo- ongoing research there about, probably is. About, these, about these earthworms right now. Uh, but there's not a big dearth of knowledge out there seemingly about them. And, you know, that probably has to do a lot with their habitat. When we were looking into this, I saw some stuff on the Washington Federal Department of Federal the Forest. Washington Forest Wildlife Forest. Service, Forest Service, all that stuff. And they were saying that 99% of the Palouse, 
has gone from its natural habitat to agriculture. Right. Yeah, and that's that's another good point is that, you know, if you if you listen to anything that Alan Marshall has to say, who was a former anthropology professor at LC, he, he describes the Palouse as basically like an industrial floor. Right. It's it's been transformed. Yeah, and, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And when it brings some contention between the worm people, the biologists, conservationists, definitely. and the farmers who don't because they're trying to get it on the endangered species list. Right. And it's a bit of a misnomer about the Palouse earthworm living in what would be the farm fields of the Palouse because they actually live in and around like riparian zones and forests. Um, yeah, the natural prairie land that still exists. Yeah, and and they suspect that you could find these uh, specimens around the Cascades even or the Umatilla National Forest. Um, but they live in a lot of places where there's like Douglas fir um, and different types of just fir forest. So you, you got on the one side these farmers that are really concerned that if it ends up on the endangered species list, then the habitat in which they live is going to be classified as farm fields. But Yeah, and they'd have to give up some of that land possibly to – Right. Try to restore the Palouse earthworm, which right, and that's the thing is because probably because they've been reduced to such a small area. Well, we're assuming they've been reduced to much smaller. It's not a bit hard leap, but there hasn't been enough found about the earthworm to convince the powers that be that it needs to be on the endangered species list. Right. But there's a group out there trying. Yeah, and I think it would be really difficult, especially because of the economic power that comes from those farm fields. It would, yeah. be, it would be really hard to get that worm on the endangered species list and stop that production on that quote-unquote industrial floor. Yeah, the industrial floor. Yeah. And it'd be nice to uh, – I know we've got some friends kind of in the conservation area. It'd be fun to have some conservation people come in and talk about, I don't know, just how the Palouse used to be, what's good for it, what's going on. Yeah, we might just do that in the very near fu- future. Yeah, sneak peek. Uh, what I would like everybody to do at this time though is maybe just lay down on the ground wherever you are and wriggle like a giant Palouse earthworm for a second. Yeah, you could do it. Clothing optional. <laughs> All right. So we're we're doing this episode a little bit different in that we are doing it in segments, discussing what we're get. I guess we're calling anomalies around the area. This strange, cool little, unique features about the radius of the LCV, and uh, the next one that we're going to discuss is boom, 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 boom. You can hear it walking. What is that? Is that a mountain? Travel due south from Lewiston down US 95, and you might drive up on something unusual. No, I'm not referencing the Cadillac Ranch or the Dog Bark Inn. What I'm talking about is gigantic. You might even say mammoth-sized. Stay tuned. This one's sure to get hairy. This one's about to get woolly, more like it, because what we're actually talking about is the Colombian mammoth. Just off of US 95, as you come into Grangeville, you can see a full-size replica of a Colombian mammoth, 
at uh, Saltman Park, just behind the Grangeville Chamber of Commerce. Now, why would they erect a replica of a mammoth in Grangeville? Well, uh, because not too far from where that replica sits, uh, there was actually the remains of up to possibly eight Colombian mammoths pulled out of Tolo Lake, which is just near Grangeville, and that was in 1994. They pulled out all those mammoths, and they also found some ancient bison, and they were in, I think, a dry lake bed. Yeah, so a group of uh, citizens called the Friends of Tolo Lake, in addition to the Idaho Fishing Game, were working to make the lake itself deeper. So they drained the lake, and that was an attempt to increase, like, fish populations and wildlife habitat. Yeah, ducks and other birds and stuff like that. Right. And in doing so, they saw this gigantic bone sticking up out of the muck of this drying out lake bed. And upon examination, they found out, wow, this thing is a leg bone from a mammoth. And at that point, they involved the Idaho State Archaeologist. And they took about two weeks to excavate their remains. But it was a little bit tricky because they had to rush against uh, time because it was in the fall, and they were worried about rains gathering and filling the lake oh, back right. up. Well, yeah, I know a lot of the bones were taken from the lake to U of I and their uh, Pocatello uh, branch, the U of I campus. And you, there's actually some of the actual bones on display in Pocatello at the U of I. Yeah, you can actually check out one of the tusks from that dig. They uh, have it on display at the Bicentennial Historical Museum there in Grangeville. Yeah, it's great. You can go check out the tusk, and then you can look at the full-size replica they have. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But another thing about uh, the dig that was kind of interesting is that there were tours that were open to the public, um, but they eventually had to shut it down because it was distracting from the excavation. And as I mentioned before, they had to kind of hurry up to get this dug out before it rained and filled the lake back in. Um, In addition to that, Cigarette smoke was actually affecting the carbon dating that they were trying to do to figure out when these mammoths died. Yeah, and at that time, it was easier just to not allow tourists than to not allow tourists to smoke. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually the lake was filled back in. It's a fishing destination and a wildlife habitat now, and it's still managed by the Idaho Fishing Game. Okay, yeah, it's a great place to stop and maybe probably catch some... Bass? I don't uh, know what they're There's probably trout and trout. bass in there. I'm not positive what's in there. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So they pulled eight mammoths out of there, right? Right. Somewhere around there. And like I said, these ancient bison, which I guess grew pretty large as well. Right. So they actually got the remains of three out, but there were, there were thought to be at least eight mammoths there in that pit. So do they have any idea why there were so many mammoths in one spot? There's some idea, but it's not positive. I mean, some people postulate that it was human involved that, you know, like people were there hunting the mammoths and they just left behind the carcasses there. Like they were able to come up on a a herd of them and, and kill them, but... I don't know. We I guess we'd have to dig into that further, but Well, that'd be tough cuz you'd kind of have to have some idea of what the area was like about 10,000 years ago when these the guys were walking around. Right, exactly. And another thing to think about in terms of the Columbian mammoth versus a woolly mammoth, which there is a, a distinction is that 
Columbia Colombian mammoths were about one and a half times bigger than a woolly mammoth. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and a woolly woolly mammoths only lived uh, basically on on tundra. Okay, and the Colombian mammoths were down more in the temperate areas, so the Camas Prairie was perfect for them. And Tolo Lake, it's not just known for pulling out these mammoth bones. Like it's a really old lake that has some significance dating back generations. Yeah, it's uh, an ancient meeting point for the Nez Perce and neighboring bands. They would kind of use it as a landmark because it is a naturally occurring lake, even though in the 90s they did dig it up to make it deeper, which of course is when they found the bones. Right, and you got to imagine if the lake was there 10,000 years ago, you know, 10, 20,000 years ago when these mammoths were hanging around, that might have been a good watering hole. There might have been some saber-toothed tigers or dire wolves getting the best of them back at that point because they were walking around too. But this, like you were saying, this mammoth is colossal. How how big were some of these bones they were pulling out of the ground? Yeah, so some of the leg bones were about five feet long. They found a shoulder blade that was like two feet by three feet. And the estimated size on average of one of these mammoths would have been about 13 feet at the shoulder and they would have weighed roughly 10 to 15,000 pounds. And the Colombian mammoths, they're not as hairy as you would think maybe. Yeah, they're actually not a woolly mammoth. They're obviously a Colombian mammoth and and they were typically going to live like in temperate areas. So the Camas Prairie was perfect for them. Whereas a woolly mammoth lived up on the tundra and they were quite a bit smaller. So a woolly mammoth was about one and a half or one and a half times smaller than a Colombian mammoth. That's crazy. So the Colombian mammoths were really the big, kind of probably one of the biggest things walking around out here. Yeah. I imagine at least so. in their time. Yeah, definitely. Something else kind of funny, I guess, that I found out was that President Thomas Jefferson was an amateur paleontologist. So, and he was really excited about rare and large creatures. And in the early 1800s, Lewis and Clark were about to make their expedition west. He said, hey, guys, while you're over there, keep an eye out for woolly mammoths or saber-toothed tigers. Um, You know, he was... A little bit hopeful to find one. My guess is that he didn't really expect to find one, but he still wanted to find remnants or something like that. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that uh, in terms of Jefferson being an amateur paleontologist. That's cool. Yeah, to be fair, I didn't. I don't really know much about Jefferson. Uh, he helped write the Declaration of Independence, but and he also wanted to find a woolly mammoth. Well, that's pretty. Cool. He actually had a woolly mammoth named after him. Really, the Jefferson mammoth. I keep saying woolly mammoth, but there are different types of mammoths. Yeah, there are. Probably different. confusing everybody. <laughs> um, bring it real local. Uh, they found mammoth bones in the orchards. They did, and a Soton also, um, and a couple other places. I think Genesee. They found large bones in the port of Clarkston. Oh, really? At the time the article came out, they weren't sure if they were mammoth bones, but they definitely found some very large bones in the port of Clarkston, too. Hmm. Yeah. One more segment to go, everybody. And I think it's all downhill from here. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans. You can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. Now, back to the show. 
For the last segment in our discussion about local anomalies, we're going to turn things upside down and throw our physics book out the window. Just outside of Grangeville, past the mammoth bones, there's a place with no regard for Sir Isaac Newton, where water and round objects seem to defy gravity and roll uphill. And we're, of course, talking about Gravity Hill on the Mount Idaho grade. Uh, if you go ask a local about what the Gravity Hill is, they'll probably tell you if you go and park your car at a certain point, put it in neutral, the hill will work its magic and your car will seem like it's actually going uphill. I've heard it's not just cars that do this, but bring a soccer ball with you. Uh, maybe even water will work too, If you, but you can put the ball on the ground for sure. And instead of rolling downhill like normal, that ball will seem to roll up the hill. And, I mean, obviously if you go, you're going to wonder what's causing this to happen. Yeah, and there's actually a bunch of urban legends that say that uh, it's ghosts or something similar that's pushing your your car up the hill with a little bit of ghost power, but... Some people think it's not ghosts, but instead it's like a weird magnetism. And other people think that maybe gravity is thinner right there or something weird. But actually, it's more likely that it's an optical illusion, right? Yeah, I mean, the gravity hill, it may seem to defy logic, but it turns out that it's less of a warp in time space and more of a trick of the eye. From what I found out, the optical illusion, it, it only works if you're not really able to see the horizon. And there's mm. a few grainy pictures online, and you can see some mountains off in the distance, but kind of where the spot that the photos were taken, there's a bunch of trees around, mm -hmm. the road kind of disappears over a hill in the distance, So, and then there's like the brush on one side of the road is a lot taller than the brush on the other side of the road. And so, so all these things coming eye. together... Yeah. yeah, and I'm not trying to be a stick in the mud or the road, if you will, <laughs> and and say that maybe there's not some sci-fi kind of stuff. Um, but to be most realistic, it's been found out then when humans don't have a horizon, we have a really hard time judging the slope of a surface. And it's not like it's a really steep hill. It's a slight grade, right. but it's still really cool. Yeah, and I mean... It's fun to go check out, and if you haven't done it, go try it out. It's it's a it's kind of a fun little thing to do if you're out there anyway, and you have nothing better to do. Go check it out. Yeah, and even though there is nothing sci-fi about it, I mean, there's no wormholes or anything except those left by the Palouse earthworm. <laughs> it's still worth checking out. It's not too far away. I think we'll, you and I will probably make a trip out there. We'll take some pictures, maybe upload it to the Instagram. Yeah, why not? And there's actually quite a few gravity hills all over the world. Uh, there's actually one in Post Falls. So there's a few different places you can check them out. Some people call them gravity hills. Some people call them magnetic hills or mystery spots. But there's plenty of them to go check out. This one just happens to be ours. There are many things that make this area of the world a unique place to live and visit, and there are more interesting things in this area than we possibly have time to explore, although we will give it our best shot. The Palouse Earthworm taught us about conservation, 
and the importance of preserving the natural beauty of our area. The mammoth gave us a glimpse into our past, and at Gravity Hill we got to use our imagination. Thanks everybody for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes. And if you have any additional information on the topics covered today, or any of our other episodes, feel free to email us at oldspiralpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.